ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Right at the start of Peter Gurr's memoir, there's that famous funny line that was written by Oscar Wilde. It's that line from The Importance of Being Earnest, where one of the characters is explaining that he has lost both his parents and Lady Bracknell quips, to lose one parent may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose two looks like carelessness. Well, it always gets a laugh on the night, but it is a line that skirts around the reality of what it must be like to suffer the sudden death of both parents at the same time. And in Peter Gurr's case, to lose them in a Pan Am air crash outside of New Orleans in the United States. At the time, Peter Gurr's was 25 years old. He lived with or very close by his mum and dad all his life. And suddenly Peter was required to drop everything, to fly to America on a request to identify their bodies. Today, four decades later, Peter is one of Adelaide's most well-loved figures. He's been a theatre director, an author, a reviewer for the Adelaide Advertiser, and he's been the presenter of ABC Adelaide's Evenings Program for many years. And it's taken him all this time to understand and truly come to terms with that strange and terrible moment way back in 1982 when the sky fell in. Peter's beautifully written memoir of that time is called in the air of an afternoon almost past. Hello, Peter. Hello, Richard. Now, you launched this book in the old childhood home in Woodville. Was that still in the family at the time? No, no. Um, it's, I think, had several owners. And um, the current owners, are Mike and Sue O'Kelly, he's a Vietnam veteran, live there with two daughters and two granddaughters. And yet it's not a big house. Uh, it's just an ordinary L-shaped suburban house in Woodville. I had a contact, a a neighbour we've remained friends with who's still there, and she put me in contact with these people and I went to visit them and uh, said, I had actually returned to the house years before, 20 years before, a listener rang my show one night and said, I think I'm living in a house you once (laughs) lived in. I said, how did you know? She said, your library stamp is on a wardrobe door. (laughs) And so I had the rare experience of going back to a house that you've grown up in, which is extraordinary. You always think it's, it's so much smaller than you remember because you were small. And everywhere you look, there are memories. There's a sort of palimpest of memories in, in a house that you've once lived in. What pictures do you have in your head of that house, Peter? Jarrah floors uh, that had been a wedding present from rallies in Western Australia. The memory I have is love. You know, my sister and I were raised with love, which is the greatest gift a person can ever have, Richard. It was a place of love, laughter and occasional tears, and it was a place of um, of some struggle, of course, but it was a place of comfort and reassurance. Woodville was a classic Adelaide working-class suburb between the city and the port, and this was the age when Adelaide still had those old institutions like Amscoll Ice Cream, Woody's Drinks, Balfour's Pastries, John Martin's Department Store. That was all part of the, the wallpaper of your childhood? And indeed, uh, our house and my grandparents' house in the next street uh, abutted 
what became the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And that had been, people look at me very strangely when I say this, but it's absolutely true. It had been an estate originally with wheat farms and it had become much smaller and a kind of market garden owned by a family called Connor. And they owned this property, uh, which became the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. We had the launch of this book in the family home. The, uh, the current owners very kindly acceded to that request. And I went down and said, look, by the way, uh, the governor of South Australia, Francis <laughs> Adamson, is coming to launch the book. And, you know, Willsey with her 19 logies will MC it. And, you know, there'll be about 100 people. <laughs> but don't go to any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was an extraordinary launch of of this book. It, I think you know stories are most powerful, and I, I read that Aboriginal elder said that recently. Stories are most powerful in the place they've come from, and this story had come from this house, so it was it was good that it it sort of went back there, and it's it, the revival of this story should start there where it had all begun. So then we come to your parents that created this house of love for you and your sister, your dad, Brian Desmond Gers. He sounds like quite an energetic man. Tell me how he made a living over the years, Peter. Well, he began, um, his his own father, who was Barossa German, had worked 47 years on the assembly line at GMH Holden's at Woodville. See, we lived by the Holden's whistle. We knew, you know, start time, knock off time, lunch time, all of that. And my father started work on the assembly line at Phillips at Hendon, making transistors and so forth. And then he branched out for a while and was a commercial traveller for Bosch selling um, automotive parts. And then he bought a service station at Seacliff, which failed. But he this was the period of when men were hobbyists. Mm. You know, you wanted a shed, you built it yourself, which he built the shed before they built the house, that sort of thing. And he, he had a lot of hobbies one of his hobbies became taking Super 8 film and he made all these Super 8 films that started with home movies and then he'd do narrative films and he joined a club and, you know, they became bigger and better. And then he turned that into a job. He would shoot Super 8 films of people's weddings. So he'd do two weddings a weekend and um, this became quite lucrative for him. And um, from that, he, when it looked as if Super 8 was coming to an end and video was coming in, this is late 70s, early 80s, he started as a, as a stills photographer and became quite successful in that role, again, doing weddings, portraits, passport photos, that sort of thing. That's why my parents were in America. They were en route to a photographic convention in Las Vegas. What was he like as a dad with you, Peter? Well... He was um, he was either on or off, my father. He had, you know, his mother was from Perth and everyone from Perth is perverse, in <laughs> my opinion. And uh, his mother, my grandmother, was the most perverse person I ever knew. He How was, so? How so? Oh, in every way, you know, the perversity. And he was somewhat perverse. He was, um, <laughs> he was a, he could be a clown, my father, but he could also be very doer. He was either on or off. And um, he was, of course, in the manner of men of that period, unaffectionate. You know, never hugged me or, uh, or indeed um, seemed to value me at all. You know, whatever I did was not good enough. I knew he loved me, but whatever I did was not good enough. Um, 
and uh, I was lazy and indolent and so forth, even though, you know, I, I think I had six jobs before I left school, delivering newspapers, selling newspapers, etc., working at John Martin's as a shop assistant, and still he'd say, you couldn't work in an iron lung, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing. And then at the memorial service for my parents, his friends would come up to me and they'd say, do you know, every time we saw your father, all he could talk about was you and how proud he was of you. And I was, I was glad to hear that, but I was also affronted, really, Richard, because I thought, why didn't he tell me? So that's the perversity right there. That's the perversity. But it was very common with, with men, particularly of that generation. But he, he was still loving in his own way and, and appreciative, I think. How about your mum, Margaret Leonore Dunstan? I adored my mother. She was, uh, she was a good woman. She was a strong woman. Um, she, she was, there again, it's generationally sad that she was an intelligent woman raised by um, a, a countrywoman, a housewife, and her father was a First World War digger who was a clerk at Elders. You can't get more South Australian than that mm. to be a clerk at Elders. And um, she was uh, uh, at Woodville High. She was intelligent enough to go to university. But, of course, in that period, unless you won a Commonwealth scholarship and they were very hard to get, you couldn't afford to go to university. Her parents just could not afford to send her. So I think that's that, that was a great shame uh, until Whitlam, of course, made that much more accessible to so many of us people were denied education. So she, much, she was a loving woman, very loving, a good mother. How much of herself did she surrender to make a lovely life for you? Lots. Yes, she did everything possible for my sister and I. No, she was a good woman. How old were you, Peter, when the theatrical instinct gripped you and never let you go? <laughs> I was in year five, grade five, at uh, Woodville Primary, and I had this wonderful teacher called Mr Martin who stood in front of the class for the entire year, drinking Coca-Cola and smoking Benson and Hedges cigarettes. <laughs> Naturally, he became a great role model. And for some reason, since I'd never been to the theatre, because we were not in any way a theatrical or artistic family, you know, I'd never been to the theatre, but for some reason I just decided that I would perform the trial scene from Toad of Toad Hall, Wind in the Willows, and my mother typed it out and ran it off on a gestetner. I played the main role, the judge, which is a good part, and also directed it with other members of the grade five class in front of Mr Martin's class and parents and friends. And so, you know, for one brief shining moment, I was the <laughs> Orson Welles of grade five at Woodville <laughs> Primary. Then I had a wonderful teacher, Mick Rivers, who was a, a Broken Hill man and a South, South Adelaide footballer who had the sense not to exhort me onto the football field in which I would have been <laughs> hopeless, but he said, you're an actor, and he put me in a little play and uh, and thus, you know, my life turned on that. You see, I was a disappointment to my parents because they were both sporty. They'd both played different sports for the state and along I come completely hopeless at every kind of sport. I have a fear of moving balls coming towards me, Richard. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief. <laughs> Oh, so from there, you went on to study drama at Flinders yes, University. At Flinders, yes. uh, your dad's business was thriving, and mm. you he moved to a new house, still around the corner from where you where you were. You were living around the corner as well. Yep. And that brings us to the tenth of July, nineteen eighty two. 
Now, what state were you in that morning before you got the phone call, Peter? Probably hungover. And um, the phone, this this was the time, you know, I was 25, when we could all sleep till the crack of noon, Richard. Mm. Nowadays, you know... um, I'm up three times before dawn. But anyway, um, the phone kept ringing incessantly at 11 o'clock in the morning and eventually I answered it somewhat disgruntledly, looking for the creaming soda and the mercindol and the black coffee to help with one's hangover. And it was my grandmother and my maternal grandmother whom I revered, Ellie, saying, there's been an aeroplane crash in America and it corresponds with your parents' itinerary. That moment, I think I knew they were dead. And, of course, then you go into denial and I immediately tried to reassure her. She was an 85-year-old lady. Oh, for heaven's sake, Nana, you know, there's thousands of planes coming and going in America. You know, they may not have even come round. She said, I went round. And then began uh, the next five hours of... um, you know, I would call Pan Am in Sydney, Pan Am in Melbourne, Pan Am in New York. Uh, yes, they'd left their hotel room in New Orleans. No, they hadn't arrived in their hotel room in Las Vegas, etc. The Pan Am people would say, take all my details assiduously, tell me nothing, uh, and it was a question of waiting. And was this in the news, this story? It, yes, and we were hearing um, hearing it on the ABC and I think even on the television, but they wouldn't give a flight number for some reason. So that that also left us in the dark. Were you doing all this with that awful sinking feeling, Peter? Of course. A, a rising of sense course. of panic, perhaps? Although I did something that, you know, you never know what you're capable of. And during all that, whilst trying to reassure uh, an old lady, I, I had the presence of mind to compile a list of all the people that I would need to inform, um, uh, which turned out to be very helpful. Eventually, uh, someone from Pan Am, New York, rang and uh, asked me to verify my identity and then they uh, gave me the news that both my parents, my mother, age 50, my father, age 52, were dead. The plane had had left the runway uh, in a thunderstorm and had got only 100 feet in the air and the wind shear, wind shear had pulled it down and it had, had it hit trees and, and crashed into a suburb and burst into flames and killed 145 people on all hands on the plane and eight people on the ground, including four children. And they said, we'll ring you back in 20 minutes with uh, arrangements for you to come to New Orleans immediately to identify the bodies. Then I had to console my grandmother, um, who was a very good uh, Baptist, and I held her in my arms and recited the 23rd Psalm. And then I had the, the, the duty to tell my sister, who was in denial that this could ever happen, and then I had the duty, which was the hardest thing I've ever done, Richard, to have to go round to my other grandmother's house, knowing that that she would have, she wasn't listening to the radio or watching the television. She was completely oblivious, and I had to walk in and tell her that her only son, 
was no more. That was a very hard thing to do. So your dad was an only child? Both my parents were only childs. So what state were both grandmothers in? Well, that's, that's how grief affects you. My, my maternal grandmother, and I'd been with her, so she was part of the process of waiting. So she, she was, I think, expectant. She, she sort of keened and, and cried a lot. It was easier for her, I think, she, because she had a very strong faith. Faith is important, I think, in these it can be important in grief. My other grandmother was you know, from Perth, was known as a Calathumpian, an agnostic, and uh, it was much, much harder for her. She really never recovered, and I think it, it, it exacerbated her dementia and agoraphobia and so forth. So that morning you'd woken up with a hangover, mm. and then sometime late that afternoon you'd been told your parents had died, confirmed yes. that your parents had died in this plane crash, and suddenly... Yes. You had to be put on a plane to go to New Orleans, to the place where your parents had died. Did, what did, you, did you even have a passport in those days? No, I didn't. I didn't. Somebody, a friend of my father came round to our, our house where there was a studio and took a passport photograph. I then had friends at, at my own house in the next street come around and they couldn't get through my head. That, and I was in this sort of fog of, of grief, naturally, and... Um, you know, I was drinking brandy but couldn't get drunk. Somebody had given me a Valium, the first time I'd ever taken a Valium, so that was sort of adding to the fog, I suppose. They couldn't get into my head that I was going to, I was leaving a very cold Adelaide winter and going to New Orleans, which would be very hot and humid in the height of summer. I think in these moments, I think you enter, it, people often enter into the world of magical thinking. Yes, it, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, which I don't think is entirely possible, Peter, but nonetheless, I think if I'd been told all this and seen Mm. it on the news, part of me, there might have been part of me thinking, this is all fictional. Can this even really be true? I haven't Mm. seen anything here. I don't, Mm. I haven't seen my parents die. Was part of you thinking that that this couldn't possibly have happened? And it was also strange to to, to lose your parents from Adelaide in a plane crash in New Mm. Orleans Mm. must have struck you as bizarre and maybe even fictional? Yes, indeed. And you don't... I mean, you go years and you think maybe it was all a mistake. You see someone who looks like them and and that's happened a number of times to me, that that sense of disbelief. But it's... it's, Yes, it's... You're numb. You're just walking through motions here. You write that you went to your parents' house where you met your sister, who was, of course, terribly distressed and upset. But mm. you say you write that the house was now utterly changed. Your parents' house was utterly changed. In, in what way? It was it, suddenly, without them, it was, it, it was a shell. It, it, it almost, you know, it just wasn't the same. You know, the soul had gone out of it. It was like a corpse then. Mm, it was, in a way, yes. A terrible burden had then fallen on your shoulders. You weren't just a grieving son. You were having to be, I suppose, the nexus of all that information, passing it on to everyone else. But you were, you're right that you were also overcome with this awful regret. What was that regret, regret for? That Perhaps that I'd told them to go to New Orleans, <laughs> um, you know, because they'd been to New York first and it was my love of Tennessee Williams and, you know, that whole... Metier that I said, I think I'd said 
you know, go there, that's one regret that you have and some sense of guilt. Had you been able to say goodbye to them before Never. they left? No, that was a regret. That I, I didn't, he didn't even know, know they'd gone. And um, it was some days, I think, I spoke to my sister and she said, oh, you know, you know, we realised they've gone overseas. I, hadn't, I, I knew they were going but I had no idea that they had gone and they lived in the next street. So I never said goodbye. And that I never said thank you. I never said thank you for all you've given me, thank you for all this love, thank you for all this opportunity of my life and goodbye. So the book is essentially a delayed, a much delayed and a long goodbye, I suppose. You couldn't have known what was going to happen. Why are you feeling no. guilty? Well, you always feel guilt, don't you, with death. Um, I should have done this. I should have said that. Uh, why didn't I dot, 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 dot. I've had more guilt from other deaths, I think, than, than this because, you know, I, what could I have done? So now you had to quickly pack that night mm. to go to America by, yes. by plane, which is, I wonder if the irony of that struck you at the time and whether that frightened you. Terrified. I mean, imagine you've just lost two parents at the height of their lives in a plane crash, so now you have to get on a plane or many planes and fly all around the world and it, it was uh, terrifying. And, uh, you know, a, a friend of my father's who was an executor of this state met me at the airport where I had to, to, to make a will um, friends had taken me there, went round to the two news agents at the Adelaide airport and turned over all the Sunday Mail, uh, the copies of the Sunday Mail because my parents' picture were on, uh, was on the front page, which I never saw at that point. And then you get on a plane and only, it was years later writing this book that I finally realised that, uh, you know, they'd, they'd block off rows because naturally, because, you know, you don't want to, you're flying from Adelaide to Melbourne, you don't want to sit with someone who's just grieving and just lost two people in a plane crash. And the the hosties, as we called them then, were marvellous. They put on, a, I think, a special senior hostie who just sat with me the entire flight. And that happened pretty well all the way to America. And how did she comfort you? She just held my hand. You know, nothing was said, but it was... It was terrifying. Are you grateful for that? Oh, very, very. Yes, very. And leaving from Hawaii to Los Angeles, um, they found a man um, who was a movie producer. I've forgotten his name, but that obviously, I don't know, must have known I'd, I was, you know, loved movies, and they put him next to me, and, and so we were able to sort of chat about movies all the way. Uh, you know, that, that was a help. Was the flight from Los Angeles any easier? Terrifying. That was, that was the worst of it. They put me in a hotel. I had something like eight hours between flights and the flight from Los Angeles to Houston left oddly at two o'clock in the morning and uh, they put me in a hotel room where I kind of collapsed. I cried for the first time and I, I became um, immobile. I couldn't move. Uh, I had to ring down to the desk and a bellboy came up with someone from Pan Am and they had to literally carry me out of the airport hotel and to the a cafe near the departure desk in the middle of the night where again I sat and again uh, this immobility took, took over. And then I was on a terrible flight. The, it must have been the oldest 
plane in the Pan Am fleet leaving at 2 o'clock in the morning. I subsequently understand that must have been a ghost flight. They'd put it on for me. And there was one other passenger who refused to sit with me and I flew through the night in a terrible lightning storm with the plane, with oh. shocking turbulence. It was terrifying. As all this was happening... Were you getting a growing sense of the wider catastrophe too? Because, of course, it wasn't yes. just your parents killed in that crash. Yes. You can't – all you can focus on is your loss, your immediate loss of, of the two people you love. You're not so aware of the wider catastrophe. Um, you know, I, I felt that later, of course. But, um, I mean, that sounds selfish. But, um, you know, you, there's only so much – so much loss you can bear at, at, at any given moment. And naturally, you're, you're most concerned for your own loss, I suppose. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. So after you arrived in New Orleans, after a terrifying flight through a thunderstorm, they check you into a hotel. Who else was in that hotel? Were there other relos of plane crash, the plane crash victims in that hotel with you? Lots. Uh, it was the Sheraton Airport Hotel, so we could... It was, it was only a couple of kilometres from the, the crash site. So there, yes, in the hotel, and immediately I'm summoned to meet lawyers, and this began the process of dealing with corporate America. Yeah, never, talk, talk, mm. tell me about walking into that room, what you saw when, you, when they summoned you to that room. A couch, a couple of lawyers, a coffee table. There was no corporate apology but sort of regret, and um, I was told immediately that I was not to leave the, the hotel under any circumstances. I was not to talk to anybody who wasn't a, a Pan Am official in the hotel. Why? I said, because they said lawyers, ambulance chasing lawyers are coming from all over America and they want your business. Who were they to be giving orders like that to you exactly. at that time, Peter? Did that thought occur to you as well, that who are these people to be giving me orders? Yes, it did. And... <laughs> Yes. I, I wanted to talk to other grieving families, some of whom I'd seen in the corridors, and that was disallowed. And the next thing they told me, well, they presented me with a piece of paper and said uh, that if I signed this, they would give me 10000 American dollars and I could return home immediately. And I said, well, A, I, I'm not signing anything, that I'd had that legal advice before I left uh, Australia, just don't sign anything. And secondly, I said, I'm here, you've called me here to identify the bodies, how do I do that and when? And they said, no, that's impossible, there's no personal identification, it's all forensic. We've brought you here to settle. And I said, well, that's pointless, I'm not signing anything. Did they then make another offer? Yes. The next day I was called to another meeting and uh, with different lawyers. It was always different lawyers because then they had plausible deniability. No, we didn't say that. They may have said that. We're not saying that. And they offered me $20,000 and I declined again. The next day it went back to ten. And, um, you know, they were taping me. We subsequently found out. They were taping you. They were recording me, your conversations yes. with them? yes. I was entirely monitored. What did they say when you knocked it back, this offer? 
they were regretful and, uh, you know, thought it was in my best interest and, and very proudly said that other families had already settled and left. I don't know whether that was true or not. Peter, does it make you wonder what kind of a person chooses to become that kind of lawyer? Yes, it does, actually. It does, rather. I mean, their parents must be so proud that they do things like that. Exactly. So they hadn't brought you, they brought you over on false premises. They told you you've been brought over to identify the bodies, which were completely unidentifiable after an explosive plane crash. And really, it was to get you into a room and pressure you then. What they wanted, of course, was information about my parents' health. And then the question started at subsequent meetings. Um, you know, the, they were demanding um, medical and dental records, which were coming from Australia. But when I was thinking that it would aid the investigation, the identification, I was forthcoming with details. So the moment they found out my mother had varicose veins, ah, therefore she would have had a heart condition, therefore she was probably she probably would have been dead in 10 years. My father had a cataract, therefore he was probably diabetic, therefore he would have been, and he smoked, so therefore he would have been dead in five years anyway. So it was that sort of merciless interrogation. And the fact that they surmised these spurious conclusions about your parents' life expectancy, was that affecting the dollar figure of what they were putting Of course, because compensation is on earning value for the rest of your life, basically. So they were trying to diminish that value. It was awful. Presumably you have to put something on top of that for the personal inconvenience of being blown up in a plane as well, Peter? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. With all of that, did you have a lawyer present with you in that room? No, no, no. And that was never offered, no. And not only that, the, the the frustration was, you see, people who've lost anyone in a crash of any kind will identify with this. What you want to see is, I wanted to see the crash site. I want it wasn't real to me until I could see the plane. And what did you? What did they say when you asked to see the crash site? Impossible. You cannot leave this hotel. And there were guards at the front desk, and. A friend of mine, Rob Cosenza, who was on a delayed honeymoon in Europe, came over. He was there after a couple of days and stayed for two days. And he said, well, this is ridiculous. Of course we can go. And we could see where the crash site was from the windows. And my photograph and a brief description of of me and my interests had been published in the Times-Picayune because that newspaper was on to the fact that most of the next of kins uh, were staying in this Sheraton Airport Hotel. And the phone rang and a man said, would you take a call from the Archbishop of New Orleans? And I said, yes. And while I was waiting, I thought, you know, I'm a reformed Methodist. What do I call an Archbishop? I remembered from a play, I think, Your Grace... So he came on and he expressed great um, condolence and he said, how can I help you? And I said, I'm not a Catholic, Your Grace. And he said, I didn't ask you that. Um, What can we do for you? And um, I said, well, Pan Am virtually holding me prisoner here in this hotel and won't let me go to the crash site. He said, what? You need to go there. You need to see the good work of all the emergency service workers and and uh, you know the, and and what's happened there. He said, "I can't understand that." He said, "Just a minute, I'll call you back." Ten minutes later, he called me back and he said, 
uh, Pan Am is sending a car for you and will take you and your friend to the crash site. I said, how did you achieve that? He said, easy. He said, I rang my Pan Am contact and I said, a grieving young man from Australia who's lost both his parents, he wants to go to the crash site. Unless you send a car, my next call will be to NBC, ABC, CBS and the Times, PKU, and they'd love this story. You know, you're holding next of kin prisoner um, and that made it real, Richard. It was shocking, the devastation, because whole houses had been raised and other houses partly raised. And there were, this was a, a sort of epicentre, a ground zero of extraordinary grief and cataclysm. And, and, I mean, you could still smell roasting flesh in this suburb of Kenna. How were the rescue workers and emergency workers faring when you were there? Well, you know, they, this had been some days and they were, you know, they were exhausted and, and tired but, but they were, you know, wonderful volunteers and, and professionals and they couldn't have been more courteous to me and um, it, it, for, for the first time I was united in the suffering. I wasn't doing it on my own. And I had a sense of the of the disaster, and it was it, it it was hard, but but healing in a way. In the midst of all this, there was a miracle baby that was found. Yes. Can you tell me that story, please? Yes, I think her name was Michelle Trahan. Yes, she was just a little little baby, and once the plane hit, her cot turned over, so she was protected from the fire by the mattress, and she was found. I think. Day or two later, and that gave enormous hope to the, the rescue workers. What happened and to the I, rest of her family, though? I think no, she lost. I think parents. I think a lot of people lost. A lot of people. I, I knew someone who lost both parents and an uncle and aunt on that plane. It was te- there was you know citywide grief. It was a terrible grief throughout the entire city. Of course, it was a shocking, shocking disaster. So the Archbishop had called you and there seemed to be an awareness of the fact that there was this man from Adelaide in New Orleans to uh, attend to the site of the death of his, of his, of his parents. Was there a, a sense that the community there in New Orleans was rallying to support you and the other uh, yes, relatives? Yes, yes. It said in the paper that I worked in the theatre and every single theatrical and cinema management in New Orleans rang the hotel and offered me tickets at any time to come. And I did because I couldn't ring home at that time of the night and I would go every night to the theatre or to the cinema because I felt safe there, Richard. You know, sitting sitting in on, the, on plush seats watching something, I felt safe in a theatre and I was welcomed by my own there and uh, I so valued that it was remarkable. Pan Am had someone following me around and they subsequently reported um, so, oh, so much for the grieving son. He was at the theatre and the cinema every night, you know, this sort of thing, which was awful. Like you say, you were a big Tennessee Williams fan, the author yes. of Streetcar Named Desire and many other great places as well, famously from New Orleans. What did you do when you were told that Tennessee Williams, who was still alive then, was living right around the corner, Peter? Yes, uh, someone in uh, a theatre told us where he lived in uh, Royal Street opposite a laundromat that he owned and it was <laughs> I'd done the glass menagerie with this friend of mine, Rob Casenza, who was with me 
<laughs> we found the, the house, which was on a corner, and the, the windows and the front door were on the street. And we knocked on the door and somewhat nervously, and uh, I think it's fair to say the nearliest young man <laughs> I have ever, ever met in my life came to the door and said, yes, sort of a person who could put an S in the word banana. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes. And we said, oh, we're, we're from Australia and we're huge fans of Mr. Williams and is there any chance that we could uh, meet him? And he looked us up and down and, you know, we were young men. And he said, never heard of him and slammed the door in our faces. And we walked around the corner and the windows were on the the street and we stood by the window thinking, well, we've lost nothing there. And then suddenly um, Venetian blinds parted and Williams was a small man and at about his height, dark eyes looked out at us and I'm convinced it was Tennessee Williams himself. <laughs> but nothing happened. I said to my friends, if you'd been prettier, we'd have been in there. But... <laughs> <laughs> and also how ironic, given that you were forced to rely on the exactly. kindness of strangers while you were there in, in New mm. Orleans. So meanwhile, you're still meeting with the Pan Am lawyers. They'd had your parents' medical data. They'd extrapolated from the varicose veins and the this and that, mm. that they'd be dead in five years anyway. And they put yep. these dodgy figures in front of you. Mm. What did you tell them when they put those things to you? I didn't know, you see. I didn't know what... I wasn't wise to what they wanted because they told me they needed this medical information for identification purposes, which was a lie. Though My parents were eventually identified from dental records. Simple as that. So, it, you know, I was unwittingly helping their case. So it was... It was corporate deception. So given that you were saying no to everything, what did they do with you then? Well, I kept pestering as to, as to the identification, you know, how long it would take. And eventually, it took about 10 days, I think, of sitting around. Eventually, there was a, a positive identification and they said, would you like these bodies in coffins or cremated? And I said, I'd like them in coffins. So they arranged my return itinerary and um, I was to pick up the coffins. You know, the coffins would be there uh, to go on the plane with me and when I arrived at the airport, they'd been cremated. Against your wishes, against your express wishes. Against my express wishes and I was given my parents in casket, small cremains, the cremains in, in containers in a plastic shopping bag which I took on to the plane oh. as carry-on luggage. We can only assume, can we, can we assume that I was so dastardly to do that just to simply save them the expense of the coffins? I don't know what that was. You know, it was, it was a final sort of rudeness. And there was no, you know, the way home, you know, there was no, none of the attention that I'd been given on the way over. So it was a hard, a hard trip home. And what did you do when you plane landed on the ground at I Adelaide kissed Air. the ground. I kissed the ground. And it left me, of course, for many, many years with a terrible fear of flying, I think understandably, which was cured by bungee jumping in Surface Paradise. And it cured me of, of my fear of flying, which was a great mercy. That, that worked? It worked. Yes, it worked because I was I'd bungee jumped twice and I I was about to get on two hours later I was on a plane to come back to Adelaide and I was about to take a cocktail of sedatives and I thought 
I've just leapt out of thin air with a rubber band. And it cured my fear of flying. So back home, you now had a companion, your parents' dog, Snowy. Snowy, the wonder dog. Did yes. Snowy intuit that something was wrong? Of course, because dogs, dogs always know death, don't they? And I adored that dog, my mother's dog. Did Snowy yes. grieve as well? Of course, for quite a while until Snowy, you know, finally realised that she was living with me and we became inseparable. You grieved together? We grieved together. And I, I, losing that dog some years later of cancer was, in a way, even harder than losing two parents. Extraordinary, because I think it was, that dog was the last of them. It was the last contact with them. And uh, I associated that dog very much with them. Tell me how I, Snowy saved your life one night. I was <laughs> waiting for the same friend to return from the same honeymoon and I was sitting in my house and I'd put a, a huge Mallee log on the fire, an open fire, and I fell asleep waiting for my friend. And suddenly I'm being woken up by Snowy the Wonder Dog barking and, and pulling, jumping on me and... The, the log had fallen out of the fireplace and was burning on the hearth rug. So I quickly gathered it up on the rug and threw it out on the front lawn and put the hose on it just as my friend arrived. So it snowy saved my life. Peter, if I'd been your friend at that time, I don't think I would have known what to say to you. I mean, how do you say to someone, I'm so sorry your parents died in a bizarre plane crash in New Orleans? Yes. Was it yes. hard for people to talk to you about it? Or I'm sure everyone got it wrong and I don't know. What was that like with dealing with friends and, and them trying to either come to you and, and help you with your grief or avoid you because people worry such things are contagious, bad luck mm. is contagious. What was that like? Well, I think all of that. But uh, I think people were very understanding and, it, and they had to be. You know, my friends had to be because it put me into a, a period of the next five years of self-destructive behaviour. I could see no point to life. So I was doing my level best to really just diminish my own life. How were you uh, doing that, Peter? Drinking. I was not an alcoholic, but I was a binge drinker, shocking binge drinker, until I stopped that in 1987 and never looked back. But, yes, it, it, I, was, I was very... Because what's the point? You've just lost two people in the prime of their lives. You know, what's the point of life? You know, I could go tomorrow too, so, you know, why not have another drink? You know, I was uh, I was compulsive and um, and self-destructive. How hard was it for you to give up the drink entirely? It was easy. You know, I just I just stopped. You know, I'd reached a crisis point with it, and only two of my friends, I, of all of my friends, only two of them had the courage to say, "Stop this, Peter. This is this is a big problem for you." And I I resented them at the time, but looking back, you know, I, I'm very grateful to those people. Because a lot of one's other friends are not honest about this because, you know, alcohol loves company. So, you know, they were enjoying drinking with me. And I was, I was very lucky that I just stopped drinking and, and never missed it. Did the lawyers ever arrive at a settlement with, between they Pan did. Am and you and they your did. sister? And the extraordinary thing when I was writing this book, neither my sister nor I nor the lawyer, our Adelaide lawyer, 
can remember what what the fee was. It was uh, uh, we just can't, we can't remember. It was blood money, and it kind of soon went. It went. We we ended up with I think a couple of houses, which soon went in one way or another. You know that it was you know, blood money. It sounds like it sounds like the money wasn't in the long run any good for you. No, of course it wasn't. Of course it wasn't. And you feel guilty about that money too. You know, that's part of the guilt, I think. And it doesn't mean anything. Was it more trouble than what it was worth? In a way, yes. In a way, yes. It didn't. I don't know that it's created much opportunity. You know, all you want is them. All you want. See, the problem with grief too is, and it's a terrible issue with grief, and we live in a time of grief. I don't know why, but we do. And the problem with grief is not the immediate grief because you're surrounded by well, well-meaning people. The problem with grief is 25 years, 30 years later, 40 years later, you suddenly think, I can't remember them. What did they smell like? What did they sound like? What did it feel like when they hugged you or kissed you on the cheek? And you can't remember. And they've gone into this sort of vapour and that's the worst of grief, the the disappearance. How about your grandmothers, your father's mother, your mother's mother who had Mm. lost their only children? How were they faring in the years after the disaster? Well, my Baptist grandmother uh, remained strong uh, in her faith and was a remarkable woman. I was very close to her, um, and she weathered it well. She lasted another 10 years and died at 95, and my other grandmother really was never the same, and she developed uh, agoraphobia and dementia, and it was was very hard for her, very hard. I mean, to lose a child, to lose a parent is one thing, but to lose a child is the worst thing that can happen to a person, of course. People always want you to just get over it. And mm. a very clever person on my show once said, I don't see why you have to get over anything. Do you feel like that? The worst thing is, you know, as I'm now, you know, much older and I'm surrounded by friends and I found other mothers, other fathers, of course, in my life, senior artists in the theatre mainly, um, to, to whom I've been devoted uh, forever. But you watch as you're your contemporaries, parents who are now in their 90s, as my parents would have been, and they're sick and, and you know, they have dementia or Alzheimer's and so forth, and they say to you ridiculously, they say, in many ways you were lucky, Peter. You don't have to go through this. And I say, well, get stuffed because that's not the point at all, is it? And that's, that's ridiculous. Your dad had shot plenty of family Super 8 films, like you said, that mm. were later lost in a, in a flooding, in a household flooding. Yes. And as you said, you know, the physical memory fades over time. You can't remember what it was like to be held by them, to mm. smell them, to hear that, that particular tone of voice, and then the movies were lost too. So what remains after all of those things have faded? Love and uh, the memory of laughter and the memory of fondness and a few pictures. And uh, it was all much harder for my sister who raised children without her own mother, without a grandmother or without grandparents. It's much, much harder for them. But what remains is 
my mother's smiling face and, and her love for me. And what remains, Richard, is my father loved movies. He loved particularly the Marx Brothers. And I was, one night I was in my bed in the middle of what seemed like the middle of the night and he got me out of bed in my little pyjamas and my hush puppy slippers and my little Onkaparinga dressing gown, probably age seven or eight, and he propped me up in front of a black and white Chrysler television and we watched Duck Soup, the Marx Brothers Duck Soup, and he and I sat there with tears of laughter rolling down our faces. And that is the most precious moment, you know, I've ever shared, I think, with anybody. It was an extraordinary moment of love and laughter. And that's that's what remains. Gratitude, I suppose. You called your book In the Air of an Afternoon Almost Past. Almost past. Why almost? Well, because I don't think that sort of loss ever completely passes, does it? I was going to call it carelessness after that Oscar Wilde quote, you know, to lose one parent is a misfortune, to lose two looks like carelessness. But I went for the more Tennessee Williams title, I think, that, uh, you know, because that's perhaps more New Orleans. But no, it doesn't. And, and that, you know, they remain in the air over that city, don't they, I suppose? Peter, what a lovely, amazing and moving story. Thank you so much. And as I say in the book, citing George M. Cohan, whose curtain call sign-off was always, my father thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. 